robots, it's Hannah and Rachel, and we are back for our anniversary episode, which is gonna be about Crimson Peak, directed by Guillermo del Toro, a show alum and fan favorite. Yes, the fan being me. This was long promised. I think we last talked about doing an episode on this movie back in January? I feel like that's a thing. Um, But it was one of the things I think we originally talked about when we were thinking about making the show and we're like, well, what kind of things would we talk about? And we're like, well, we need to talk about Crimson Peak. So it seemed fitting given it is the season of spookiness and also um, our anniversary that that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Do we, we know there's a couple of you out there who probably already know probably as much about this movie as we do. Um, But do we want to start off with with a brief summary? I can take that. Please do a summary. Crimson Peak is the story of a young woman named Edith Cushing who opens the film by saying that, like, she, the movie opens with a shot that we don't know about it at that moment, but it comes at the end of the movie and it goes into her childhood about how she is sensitive to ghosts and she sees them all the time. And the movie is the story of how she gets from a child who sees the ghost of her mother who died due to this really horrible illness um, to where she's like standing in the snow outside of this manor with blood all over her. And um, in between that, a lot of things happen. Uh, It starts in Buffalo, New York, where she's living with her father, who's an engineer and a builder. And she's trying to get this ghost story she wrote published, but they keep telling her, oh, well, you need a love story in it because that's apparently what we tell female writers. Uh, she meets um, real life gothic uh, love interest uh, Tom Hiddleston, who plays Sir Thomas Sharp, and his sister Jessica Chastain, who plays Lucille Sharp, and they have a whirlwind romance as you do. And uh, just as Thomas is getting ready to uh, propose marriage to her, her father approaches him. And though it isn't quite clear what information he's dug up, it's severe enough that he's like, I will literally pay you $3,000 to get the fuck out of my house and to go back <laughs> to wherever it is you came from and to never speak to my to my child again. So uh, they do that, kind of. So Thomas does that thing where he basically, like, humiliates Edith in front of all of these people and is like especially starts picking on her writing and all this other stuff but little does Edith know the next day two separate events happen one her father is murdered which she doesn't know which she doesn't know she doesn't know at first um but she Thomas and Lucille send the manuscript that she was having him read back to her but he includes a letter with it that's all about his real feelings. So she goes to their hotel because she knew they were going to leave that day. And just as you think, the staff is like, they checked out this morning. And then the shot turns out and he's like right there. And uh, a bitch might have gasped in the movie theater and may have gotten laughed at when that happened. Who knows? I can't <laughs> say. Um, after it comes out, of course, later, like within the hour, that her father has been murdered obviously she's extremely upset it's 
it's shown in the beginning of the movie, her and her father are very, very close. And in an effort that has very different meanings for both of them, Edith um, and Thomas go back to England, to Cumberland, England, I think is where they live, um, and go to the real, like, fifth leading character in this narrative, which is House <laughs> itself, Allerdale Hall. And Edith, Edith, supposedly, we real we figure out in the end, it's not really Edith that's pulling all these strings, but it's like 1901. You can fake that shit so much easier now. Um, of getting all her estates and all her money transferred to her husband's family. Mm-hmm. Because it comes out that when... Um, she actually goes there. The Sharps are, like, they build themselves a certain lady. They're, like, a baronet and a baroness, I think. Um, they're, like, m- mid- mid-range nobles. But as most mid-range nobles in the early 20th century, they've inherited this estate that's no longer profitable. They are land-rich, penniless people at this point. Um, and... They, I, I can't get over this house. We'll talk about the house in more detail, but Allendale Hall is, like, it's very classic, gothic, like, something is wrong with this house, and it shows, and, like, it's, like, literally, like, deteriorating around all of them. And while Edith is in the house, she keeps seeing ghosts. They're new ghosts, though, and we'll talk about how we know they're new ghosts in a little bit. It cuts back and forth between Edith's story where she's kind of, she's trying to make herself at home and she's trying to figure out what's going on and Thomas and Lucille's story where it's almost like we keep getting one half of a conversation but mm-hmm. not like the beginning and the end of it. So you never really have all the information. But most of us who were genre savvy were like, oh, here we go. Right. <laughs> the, the thing that like we all kind of knew was very wrong about these two is gonna, is gonna come up soon. Um, meanwhile, back in the United States... Dr. Alan McMichael, who's played by Charlie Hunman, um, who is Edith's childhood friend, because there's always a childhood friend, um, is doing some investigating, and it comes out that Edith's father found out that Thomas Sharp was already married, and nobody knew what happened to his wife. As the investigation proceeds and Edith starts getting more and more information, it's just she investigates the house... And she finds all this evidence of these, it's like, at first it's just one other woman, and then it just keeps going. I think there was, like, four or five at the end. I remember seeing four locks of hair. Yeah, there were four. You were right. You're, you're right. It comes out that he, they've run what is essentially this scam uh, to get rich uh, ladies' estates four times, and they have murdered all four of these women. And then it comes out that Thomas and Lucille have this incestuous, very strange relationship, which, again, if you're genre savvy, that's not really a surprise. It's wildly uncomfortable, but it's not a surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Then it comes out that they murdered their mother and, like, all this other stuff. And... During the whole big emotional chase scene throughout the house, which um, 
you had a great point here in our production meeting that's very reminiscent of The Shining with Lucille chasing Edith around the house with a huge, huge axe. Um, it comes out that Thomas has for real, for real fallen in love with Edith and is like, basically tells his sister, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot stay here. Like, this is not, this is completely untenable. This is not a thing that is going to happen anymore. Uh, and she kills him and tries to kill Edith. And with the assistance of some ghosts and her own gumption, Edith manages to kill Lucille. And Dr. McMichael shows up. He's not very helpful. I love how he believes that he's like the shining white knight in that moment. And <laughs> he wants to be. He really wants to be. Um, but Thomas um, stabs him non-fatally on purpose. Non-fatally on purpose. Just to kind of be like, you know, you need to stay out of this because like she will kill you. She will 100% murder you in, in cold blood. Um, and there's this huge snowstorm and all, all this other stuff. But um, Edith, at the very end of the movie, we get to that shot that was in the beginning of the movie where she's, like, looking at her hands. And it, it's implied at the end that she finally writes her ghost story with a love story in it called Crimson Peak and movie. Yeah, roll credits. <laughs> roll credits. So it's it's a fucking lot. Yeah, it is. Um, where should we, uh, even begin? When this movie first came out, it was marketed, I think, much more as a gothic horror movie versus a gothic romance. Because I- Right. And I, and I think maybe that's a good place to start is to talk about, like, why it falls more heavily into one than the other because that doesn't mean that there isn't an element of horror in gothic romance there usually is right there's mostly there's usually an element of horror in the in any any genre that first word is gothic right like it it's just if you're not genre savvy it can look different and feel different than what we view as even like horror today Right. Because there's many different subgenres of horror, and I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a whole heck of a lot. But I think we all kind of intrinsically know. Mm-hmm. It's just not something that gets, is hashed out. And when you don't make those different, those di- differentiations correctly, like, and people aren't genre savvy and don't know, and you can, you can, uh, what happened to you and get your movie privileges revoked. Oh, right. I should probably tell that story. That's a good place to start. So. Yeah, let's start with that story. When I went to go see this movie, I saw this movie with my boyfriend who is not genre savvy about gothic romance, and that's fine. Uh, I picked out the movie. He's more of very much like action, adventure, comedy, uh, superhero vein. He's that kind of nerd, and I am something else. <laughs> uh, but we we manage. So we went to this movie, and he's like, "Are you really sure that you want to go see this movie? Because it's scary, and we don't like scary movies." And I said, "Yes, I really want to go see it because it looked delicious. It looked beautiful." And we mm-hmm. were all really excited about it. And I believe you guys went as a group, uh, the rest of the yes, we girls. Did. And I went with my boyfriend. 
and so the whole movie, I, I'm, it's kind of a sensory overload, like, I'm jumping out of my skin, he's obviously kind of freaked out too, which was sort of funny, um, and he's like, never again, and then, at the very end, when there's the incest reveal, he had an entire fit about it later in the car on the way home, and that, and I was like, no, that's pretty normal, and he was like, that's not acceptable, basically, paraphrasing, and he's like, you can't pick movies anymore, um, and I have since picked out movies to watch. I now try to stick to terrible sci-fi, which he also, <laughs> uh, does to humor me, but, uh, is a little bit more safe in terms of the interpersonal horror rather than, <laughs> you know, with the, <laughs> there's less incest in sci-fi, generally speaking. <laughs> generally speaking. Generally speaking. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's a Guillermo del Toro movie. Like, I, he has proven to me time and time again, he knows what I want, and he'll deliver. The issue, it's just some genres are not for everybody, and I think Crimson Peak is very much a movie for women. <laughs> no, I, I think that's an excellent point, because... Um, and I've I've read a couple interviews in my research leading up to today uh, where Guillermo del Toro talks about that, where about how gothic romance as a, as a genre was uh, pioneered and sustained by women and uh, female characters. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for it for, to not have the two sort of anchoring strong personalities in Edith and Lucille. And to not really have it be about the men in the movie. Right. And I think, too, the, um, in Lucille's case especially, part of her horror is she is trapped and consumed by the home. And I do not think that that is something that is as relatable to men, at least historically speaking. Like, feeling trapped and consumed by your home life is, is not something as relatable. And I think that's a very real fear for women, especially at that time. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's an excellent point because I've noticed that there's kind of, at least if you look at it from the more traditional binary view of, like, male versus female, there's a very strong difference in in gothic literature between what is seen as scary. Because if you look at something like Crimson Peak, which falls more in line, I think, with stories like like there's some Jane Eyre in there there's some this very Bronte inspired <laughs> I feel um there's a lot of Jane Eyre there's a lot of Wuthering Heights there's a lot of um like those kind of influences of the horror comes from and is sustained by the tension in the home the tension in interpersonal relationships versus and that's where the ghosts come from and like the setting is character and all that stuff like that brand of gothic horror that was written 
by women in that time period. I think is very different than if you look at something like um, Horace Walpole, who's credited with the first Gothic novel, which is The Castle of Otranto, which I've read The Castle of Otranto, and it's really, it's it's more about, like, it, it shares the same thing of being about the setting, like the ghosts, but it's more about, the ghosts are seen as more supernatural things on, unto themselves. Uh-huh versus this movie where the purpose of the ghosts i i kind of felt was there are these leftover markers of like violence and emotion and the there's a line thomas has it's definitely in the trailer i don't remember where it is in the film unfortunately where he talks about like a house as old as this one in time becomes a living thing and it keeps things alive that shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And that is something I think is a very uh, European idea. Because we don't have things that are that old right. in America. It's it's like the difference between American Gothic and European Gothic. Because um, I think the most famous version... The two most famous versions, I think, are of, of Gothic in America are like the work Edgar Allan Poe did which really is more I think some in the European style and then you have stuff like Southern Gothic which is what like William Faulkner wrote a lot of um which puts a lot of those ideas of like the decay of the aristocracy and all that other stuff it puts it in a more historical historical context but I think so much of what makes Crimson Peak feel weirdly claustrophobic is the house so the house as a character is, I think, a really important characteristic of a lot of Gothic literature. I think you see that to some extent in uh, Rebecca, mm-hmm. um, which is the other Gothic novel that I've read. It's not really a thing in Jane Eyre. Um, and then if you guys want some modern Gothic literature, I would highly recommend Helen Oyeyemi's White is for Witching, um, where that's also the case. I love that book. That's a great book, and it would pair beautifully with this movie, I think. However, that being said, I think the way that they did the house in the movie, I mean, you said this, that, and I didn't notice it as much that the layout of the house kind of doesn't make sense always, and it's sort of disorienting. Uh, There's also that creepy elevator. (laughs) Yes! Oh my god, that elevator terrifies me. It, it scares me so badly. Like, I don't know if it's, like, the ricketiness. I don't know if it's because the house doesn't make sense. Maybe because it goes down to this weird mine pit where they've buried four women. I don't know. There's just something about it that freaks me out real yeah, bad. Yeah, and there's also, there's the scene towards the end. I think it's as part of the chase scene where all of a sudden the house seems much spikier than it did before. And it's like the house grew teeth. Like, it's showing you its fangs at this most important moment in the story. And I think the house's decay, as so often happens, I think it's very Fall of the House of Usher, where the decay of the house mirrors the decay of the family, which is kind of what you were saying with the decay of the aristocracy. 
Yeah, it's I I saw Fall of the House of Usher as a very big influence, particularly when we talk about the house, because the Fall of the House of Usher is, of course, has a double meaning. It's the literal decay and eventual collapse of the house itself, and it's the fall of the the family Usher. Yes, and um, that is definitely something that is reflected in this film like even in the very beginning when we first show up because if you it's one of those things it's like if you've seen clueless it's like a monet if you look at it from way far back you don't really see a lot of the fine details and you don't see like the spikiness like obviously it's this big black house on a hill that looks like it's a fucking pike stabbing up into the sky so it doesn't (laughs) look very welcoming but it isn't until you get closer and like part of the roof has fallen in and Thomas, like, in the very beginning, like, jumps up and down on, like, the wood in the foyer and, like, that red goop comes up out of the floor because the house is literally sinking and being reclaimed by the earth, which is very heavily symbolic. Yeah, and they talk about the house like a living thing, like the house breathing Mm -hmm. in that terrible gust, the house is breathing... And then you have that red ooze, as the movie goes on, the house oozes more and more, I think yeah. I noticed. And it's like the house is bleeding, so it's it's literally like a living thing. It's bleeding, it's breathing, you know, it's like it has a sentience. Yeah, exactly. And it and it it refuses to let people go, which is when I was watching it, I always thought, well, that's the reason that's the reason the ghosts are still there because i i i'm very intrigued by in in literature and in real life the philosophy of what makes a ghost Mm. and like i think a lot of people have very different ideas about like obviously not everybody becomes a ghost because then it wouldn't be scary i don't think right (laughs) it was just a thing that happened to everybody it's not it's not as scary, but um, you had a great observation about the, the, the how the ghosts are color coded. Oh yeah, and and like Lucille and Lady and Lady uh, Cushing, who's Edith's mom, in the beginning are these very smoky black ghosts that look almost um almost like ash, and then there's the ghosts, the other ghosts in Crimson Peak, who look like they just like are like skeletons with bits of meat hanging off of them that just crawled up out of the ore. Yeah, and they're red. Which makes sense. Yeah, when they're red. Which makes sense once we find out where the women are buried. Um, and there's Thomas, who's the only white ghost in the film. There, he, he And I, I don't really know what that means. Like, Thomas's difference, especially. I don't really know what it means. But I felt a lot about it when I watched the movie the first time and she like reaches out and touches his face and all this other stuff because she doesn't know he's dead like she knows he's probably dead but she doesn't know for sure that he's dead until obviously her his ghost appears to her it's almost like he blends into the snow and all this other stuff um but I wonder if it's somehow symbolic of like him being a little bit different means in some way he's kind of free of the house because I think the movie and a lot of most genres, but Gothic romance like really hinges on the fact that a character wants something and 
the horror is either a hindrance or a way to get closer to that something. Right. So for Lucille, she, like, the murder and the horror, like, she's the one that says, like, well, the horror was for love. And for her, like, that's just life. Like, you, like, she is the moth eating the butterflies. And she will do these terrible things if it means that she she and tangentially her brother can carry on. And Edith isn't like that. And eventually Thomas becomes less like that. It's hard to unlearn all that crap. When it becomes apparent that you, like, murdered your mother and four other people. <laughs> like, that doesn't change overnight. In fiction, it might. <laughs> but, like, for the most part, it doesn't. Right. And But I always kind of saw that as, as Lucille is now the one who's... She's trapped forever. Like, she held on to that house for so long that now she can never leave it. But I found it interesting that she's the one we see at the end and Thomas isn't there at all. So I wonder if maybe, in a weird metaphysical way, he finally did get to leave. Yeah, I think that's probably it. Because um, Lucille is there at the end playing the piano, and that's sort of the last shot of the movie while Edith explains the different kinds of ghosts. And also, because mm-hmm. Thomas isn't seen again, I wonder if that means he wasn't as permanently attached to this world as the other ghosts. And, I mean, that's very Thomas. He's very, he's sort of wishy-washy. Like, Lucille kind of resents him because he never, quote-unquote, gets his hands dirty. He's like yeah. the light that everyone is drawn to, and then Lucille kind of eats them is the thing. Yeah. Uh, and there's a very interesting... I mean, the use of insects, especially butterflies and moths in this movie, was really interesting uh, to me because um, you have the dying butterflies, sort of. They go on a picnic, and Lucille rubs a dead butterfly on Edith's face in a very... <laughs> it's a very strange scene. And then some mm-hmm. ants eat this butterfly when she puts it back on the ground. And that's your first kind of... Lucille is sort of an unnerving character to begin with. She wears this blood-red gown to the party where Edith and Thomas fall in love. And she's the only one wearing a color that's saturated. Mm-hmm. Everyone... That's a good point. I never noticed that. Yeah, everyone else is in blushes and whites and creams or greens. And they're wearing very dark clothes. The costuming in this movie is is really fantastic. Edith is always wearing whites or yellows or greens. She's bright, she's spring, she's young. And then Lucille is wearing dark colors. And so is Thomas. Um yeah, I I think that uh the 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 this very stark contrast in the sort of color language that's going on with each of the three characters is interesting because it isn't really just their costuming it almost exceeds to um to how they're lit like when in buffalo everything is very gold it's very warm um there's this weird almost like welcoming quality to it and then as we progress further and further into allerdale hall and towards the end of the movie both in the weather and in 
the how the how the movie is lit it gets progressively cooler and cooler and cooler to this almost like stark just very almost san like it's like overly sanitized yes feeling. it's very desaturated at the end yes. in the snow it's they've pulled all the color yeah exactly like that's the kind of thing is even when edith is there in the beginning like a lot of the scenes where it's just her still have that very warm um light i think the biggest place that i can remember kind of seeing where that shift was happening first is her first night there where she's in the bath and it's these like old school amber lamps and she has this very warm glow about her and she's playing with the dog and all this other stuff and then she looks down the hallway and it's just like this cool black white blue light and it looks so unwelcoming like as if the house is trying to tell her that she's not welcome and it, as the movie progresses we learn that it's not that she's not welcome it just was trying to tell her to get out because as time goes on the ghosts in their own weird way are trying to tell her what's really going on with thomas and lucille like the first real ghost we see i don't think she sees it at first is in this closet where she thinks the dog has gotten locked in and um it turns out in that closet are all of these old photographs of thomas with his other wives and she doesn't watching it back was so frustrating because like i knew that's what it was but she doesn't pick them up the first time she sees them oh right she's just like oh this is they're a thing. the wax recordings like, yes the wax recordings and she's just like oh this is fine and puts it back and i'm like no that's really important um but i i think it's it's uh a thing in many of Guillermo del Toro's movies where he makes those sort of color stories for each of the characters. For Lucille, her big color is red, which is the color, which is obviously crimson. Crimson P gets the color of the house. I thought it was good. Um, a, a little thing that takes place over the first half or so of the film is there's uh, Edith's mom, her ghost, when she's like 10, comes to her and she's got this weird, like, skeletal face, and she's, like, smoking, and it's really unsettling. And she says, my child, beware of Crimson Peak. And then she says it again when Edith's about to go off with Thomas. And we don't really know what that means, and Edith doesn't really know what that means. And then one afternoon, as Thomas is, a, is also an engineer, and he's trying to build this machine that will revolutionize clay mining, and they'll get their money back, and it's a whole thing. Um, but he hurts his hand or something. So they're like down in the kitchen and she's like bandaging him up. And while she's finishing up band bandaging him, he's like doing the tough guy thing of like, why did you marry a failure? And blah, blah, blah. <sighs> he's a very Byronic hero. He is very Byronic. It's, we'll talk about that. Because <laughs> I think we need to talk about that. Um, but he is talking about the how he, the the workers that he's hired to help him with his machine are going to leave at nightfall but they'll be working against the snow 
And he's just, and he says something along like, well, when the snow falls, you'll, you'll know why they call this Crimson Peak. And there's this, like, music cue and a beat <laughs> where you can literally see on Edith's face, like, a piece just sliding into place. Yeah. And she's just like, oh, no, <laughs> this is not, this is the opposite of what I wanted. And, um, it's that little bit of dramatic irony, because obviously we as the audience know that's very significant. But to Thomas, he's just like, yeah, they, you know, people in the village, they have names for old houses. You know, the ore seeps through the snow in a way that apparently they don't see as unsettling. <laughs> I do enjoy the one scene where she's seen the ghost and he's like, has anybody died in this house? And he's just like, why would you say that? <laughs> Yeah, that's the best. He's just like, it's old house. It's fine. It's, of course. And she's like, you know, but like violent deaths. And he's like, oh, gotta go deal with this thing. <laughs> uh, I gotta go, babe. <laughs> Let's talk about Thomas as a Byronic hero. Okay. Because, like... It's the hair. I, I it, it is. It's the hair. It's the outfits. The fact that he's routinely seen with, like half of his shirt unbuttoned but with the suspenders and the black pants and the ruffled hair like it's a look (laughs) that evokes a very certain character archetype and i think it's done very much on purpose oh yeah of course of course but he i hadn't i like i i felt kind of bad for thomas at some point and and it is a bit of a gender reversal as far as I think a lot of the times in gothic romance and in like like in that brother sister relationship usually I think the male partner would be the more aggressive person oh yeah that's true and he's the one that's kind of like the wilting flower he is though beneath <laughs> beneath Lucille's iron fist like she and 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 of course obviously he still had to kill people but I, I definitely think as time goes on, we see that once he leaves the house and once he is more free of Lucille's influence, his personality starts to change. Whether that is a product of him just feeling like he can have more of a personality, because she's a very strong personality. Mm-hmm. She is very much like this is the way things are. This is the plan. You do not deviate from it and you do what I say. Right. And um, the one sex scene in the movie, and it is worth noting, I don't know what this means, but it's worth noting that Tom Hiddleston actually has the most nudity in this movie. It is not either of the two women. And I appreciate that. Not only as a consumer, but also like as a person who's tired of seeing... (laughs) needless female nudity in horror films right we don't need it anymore it's not a thing um but they spend the night at this post office because he's he's like ordered all it's it's the 1900s you have to order all these parts from everywhere to do anything for this machine apparently um and him and it's a thing throughout the whole movie that like him and Edith haven't had sex yet because it's a horror movie, so sex is of course very important. And <laughs> um, he, uh, so they finally have sex. Yeah, they can't do it in the house 
and that's they very... can't do it in the house that's that that was that was the point i was trying to get to they can't do it in the house and they finally do it and lucille is so mad yeah she, she freaks is out so mad she freaks out at them and i think that i'm like i from the fucking trailer i knew the incest was gonna be a thing that solidified it <laughs> and they come back and he's like trying to defend himself while she's just screaming at both of them yeah i'm just like oh you did a bad thing thomas <laughs> like this was not oh this is not going according to plan there's so much especially and i think some of it is a credit to jessica chastain and tom hiddleston's acting and i think they're very good friends in real life there's so much to that relationship that i could talk about yes because there are times, especially in the beginning, they work almost, like, in sync. Like, they play off each other in a way that seems very practiced. Mm-hmm. Which is probably an indication that they've done this before. Right. <laughs> and this is a thing that they've done. Um, but something I found interesting narratively, because it's, um, it's a gothic romance, I think, works a little bit differently on a screen. Yeah, And it doesn't book like most genres it works a little bit different like like i'm reading the shining right now and obviously it's a very different experience than like watching the stanley kubrick film because they're two completely different mediums and different things work for them but in the movie in something that probably wouldn't happen in a gothic romance that's purely from edith's perspective it cuts back and forth between a bunch of different stories so that we pick up on some stuff before she does even if it's just, like, the weird cryptic conversations that Thomas and Lucille have. And that kind of starts, I think, when they're in the park. And he's asking her for the ring. And it's, it's that's kind of like a fake out. Because you've got, because <laughs> if you're not genre savvy, you may think that's over when he proposes to her. And she has the engagement ring on and all that other stuff. But she says something of, like... Well, I'm going to get it back. Right. Because we're just buying something else with it. Uh-huh. And that, obviously, is a reference to all these other times they've done this. And, like, when they're sitting downstairs in the kitchen and they're making tea, which is poisoned, because of course it is. Um, he, uh, and they're talking and it's, it, when Thomas starts to kind of be like, do we really gotta be like this? Is this really a thing that we have to do? And it's it's like they're half talking about something. And I think that's very... I think that's an interesting choice. And I think it works in the film. Because it adds to that suspense of, like, the audience knowing something is wrong. But the protagonist is, like, a few scenes behind. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know long before she does that Thomas was married before. Yes. Right. Because one of the narratives that we get are the Dr. McMichael, her childhood friend, you know, he thought it was all very suspicious how her father died immediately because he's a doctor and, like, the, his face, the his her father's face was just caved in. Like, you don't slip and fall and hit your head and, like, your half your face is gone. But Edith was so upset by his death that she didn't allow them to investigate it any further. Uh at the time, but, uh, the doctor follows up on, uh, 
Or he's, like, snooping around, and he notices that the last check was written to Thomas Sharp. Yeah. I find it very fun that, for a long time, I think Dr. McMichael thinks he's existing in a completely different genre. (laughs) Because it's mentioned in the beginning when um, Edith goes to visit him, and they talk about ghost photography. Um, he He talks about Arthur Conan Doyle, who was publishing Sherlock Holmes at this time. And I believe he was still, I think he was still publishing Sherlock Holmes. But in any case, he had a collected volume of his work. And Edith mentions something about like, oh, do you fancy yourself a detective now? And for most of the movie, he does. And he thinks that he, he, he's, he's trying really hard even if it's not necessarily to be a hero. Like, him he, him, and Mr. Cushing were on to this from the beginning. Like, he's... They are, they've been on to the whole... There is something not right here. And <laughs> they could never really tell what it was. And then when he finds... He finds out about half the story, he decides to just hop on a boat and go to the house. Because he hasn't heard from Edith. And... The fact that he happens upon this story that he really only has half of and then immediately gets stabbed. (laughs) Yeah. Like, immediately. Like, that, I'm just like, Alan. Alan, buddy, this is what happens when you don't know your tropes. Like, because for for so much of the movie, I thought it was very interesting. When I was first watching it, I was watching it in the theater, I kept trying to think about, okay, who's going to be the people left standing at the end of this? Because that, I think, is a very... that The process, who lives and who dies, is very integral to horror, I think. And I think it differs depending on what style of horror you're looking at. Like, who would traditionally survive in something like a slasher movie is very different than a gothic romance. And I think that's why I appreciated the fact that Edith had sex and then didn't die. We talked about that with we talked about that with Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that's a, that's a thing that if you don't know, that's kind of we joke about it, but it is kind of upsetting about how in horror fiction, uh, usually uh, don't have sex if you're a woman. If you're a man, this doesn't seem to apply to you. But if you <laughs> uh, like so many things, um, but if you are a woman and you think you're in a horror movie, do not have sex. Right? Don't do it. Don't do it. Because you, you you'll die. Yeah. So apparently. And it's always like as much as I've grown to really dislike Joss Whedon <laughs> lately, um The Cabin in the Woods, which is a movie he wrote, does a good job of discussing that, I think, of that trope of that girl who's like the smart, nerdy, virginal lady and how she's the one who ends up running away from the killer at the end. Mm. That's not in every story, but it's enough of an archetype. I think it's worth mentioning. Yeah. Um, So while in thinking about that and how there's a difference in genres between, like, who lives at the end of these horror movies, for a long time throughout the course of the film, I I was struggling with, I'm like, okay, who's going to die? Because I was pretty sure GDT would not do me like that. And Edith wouldn't die at the last second after being in the first shot of the movie. I'm like, that's kind of lazy. I don't think he would do that. It became more obvious over the course of the film, Thomas had to die. Oh. Because he <laughs> he was not making it. And some, like, 
I thought, I really thought Alan McMichael was going to die for a while there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did too. I really thought he was going to die. Even from the trailer, I'm like, you're gone. Sorry, bud. Uh, But I I teetered back and forth with deciding on if I thought Lucille was going to die. Because most sometimes, especially in the more, I say traditional, more classically violent horror, the villain doesn't always die for good. Mm. And I think it does, I think the ending makes sense for this film in that, yes, she died, but is her soul ever really free? Right. From this place that she fought so hard to stay in? And the answer is no. But I I think that is an interesting thing that Guillermo del Toro plays with. And I read a cut, there weren't really complaints, but I read some reviews where they were like, well, it doesn't really do anything different with the genre. And I'm just like, does it have to? Yeah, I kind of hate that, that everyone always wants something to do something, like, new and innovative, and I don't really find that necessary. And that's, okay, I'm gonna be real with you. That's one thing I love about fan fiction, is people are not afraid to rehash the same thing 80,000 times. Oh, mood. It's just, like, I want, like, a different flavor of this today. Like, I want to come here and know what I'm going to get, And I want to celebrate and love it and, like, look at the aesthetic. I don't necessarily need to be intellectually pushed every single time I watch something. We talk about that a lot. (laughs) We do talk about that a lot, but I I think it's worth repeating in this context because I think that's one of the things that really irritates me about a lot of criticism of media in general is there's always the whole thing of if it's not seen as quote-unquote new or innovative it's seen as derivative and somehow derivative has become a bad word Uh as if everything is not derivative of everything else right like we've we've been making art for like over a thousand years like guys yeah at some point there's only so many ideas And at the time that this movie came out, I feel like gothic romance had really fallen out of the popular imagination. I think this movie was sort of the advance guard for gothic romance returning to popular imagination. Now we have Haunting of Hill Houses coming out, or has come out. Yes, it's out on Netflix. I want to watch it because that book is one of the only books that has genuinely kept me up at night and very, very much scared me. Like, I don't, <laughs> obviously, it's, obviously, it's a series versus a very slim book, but I'm very interested in seeing what the changes are. I've seen people talk about it and people seem to, there seems to be largely positive, the response. I think one of our friends has watched the first few episodes and she really likes it so far uh there are a lot of ghosts so that's good but i think the interest in the paranormal and the supernatural has kind of made a comeback i don't know what it is about the current cultural societal moment that we're having where we're very interested in paranormal things again (laughs) maybe it's a search for a deeper meaning in amidst all of this nonsense that we're going through but 
I, I couldn't really tell you what what's driving it. I like it, but <laughs> as for I the actually reason, think that might be true. Honestly, yeah. I I think that's as good a, a as good an explanation as any that looking for something beyond the mortal plane, even if it's something horrific that we find there, I think is something that that has been a thing human beings have related to for a very long time or we wouldn't keep telling the same stories because like I think the the desire for there to be something more than this is something that keeps popping up especially i think in very transient political moments like the moment that we're in right now where it feels and i think there there's an almost a culture of hopelessness at mm. play now which i try really hard not to fall into but sometimes the world makes it really easy to do that. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's as good of an explanation as any. Because I, I mean, I remember... I was actually thinking about this the other day. I didn't know if I was going to bring it up. but And we might cut this out. But I, I think it might be worth mentioning. I saw somebody on Tumblr who didn't know what Super Who Lock stood for. Oh, Wow. And I'm, first of all, I felt old. Yes. I felt really fucking old. Um, and they, they figured out Locke was Sherlock, who was Doctor Who. But they're like, what does the super stand for? And I'm like, are there children that have been raised in a time after the, the, the cultural saturation of the TV show Supernatural? Uh- <laughs> hard to imagine that is hard to imagine because that is a show like even though i felt like i watched all of it because it was so prevalent but there was a it it, to bring it into why i thought it was applicable to this conversation was for the first four seasons it was really a monster of the week show and then that started to become unsustainable so in the fifth season they had a lore switch where they started to talk about angels and demons and God and all that, all that fun stuff. And I think that switch was also a result of a moment while fictional in the show, I think is a moment that we can kind of relate to of trying to find something that was beyond and bigger than the more mundane horror that we see in our day-to-day lives these days. Right. We're, we are looking for supernatural horror because we are experiencing mundane horror. Yeah, to the point where we're like, it's, it's, it is the new normal. I, like, uh, we're recording this on, on a Sunday, Sunday the 28th, and yesterday there was um, a horrible anti-Semitic attack in Pittsburgh. And I felt awful because, like, while I was, of course, disgusted and horrified, I probably didn't have as strong as a a reaction as I would have had if that had happened even four years ago. Yeah. Because as, as horrible as events like that are, they've, we're so desensitized to it and we're not surprised by it anymore. Yeah. Or at least not as much as we would have been. Mm-hmm. And that is a very horrifying possibility that this has now become, this level of fear and violence has now become normalized. Right. 
and I don't really know what to do about it, which mm. is the most horrible thing. I have no idea what to do about it. Well, we're both going to go vote. That's very important. That's uh, true. <laughs> Week from Tuesday, people. Uh, and then, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with with that really either, other than to go vote. But um, this was a nice. This movie was kind of a, a good escapist type of thing because there there is no situation in my life in which I'm going to have to deal with being seduced by an incestuous aristocrat that is yeah. having money problems. So th- <laughs> God, could you let me talk about how I wish those were the problems I had? Yeah. Because, like, we, uh, I think maybe that's why this movie and this genre appeals to me so much. Because I'm just like, God, I wish that were me. Right. I'm like, could I please have gothic heroin problems instead of, like, I have a very naughty cat and too much housework to do and too many projects yeah. at work. Like, there's just something about, <laughs> about yeah. that not being the problems <laughs> that they're dealing yeah, like, with that's fun. Yeah, and I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm in my second to last semester of grad school. I'm taking five courses, so I have at least four final projects to do. And they're all long because it's grad school. And, I mean, I was the dumbass who decided to take that many classes. But it's like when I – it was so nice to just take two hours out of my life and watch this movie and have problems that even though they feel real to me in the moment, I know – I can unpack it in my own mind and then put it away. And you can't do that in real life. And I think that's part of the real appeal of gothic romance. And to some extent, horror as a genre is it lets you deal with exactly the kind of emotion that you want to deal with. But then you can pack it up and put it away. All right, robots, that's going to wrap us up for this episode on Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. Uh, like, like I said in the beginning, we've been wanting to do this episode for a while, and it was really fun to actually get the chance to sit down and sort of collect my thoughts about this thing that I really like, because I think that's part of the reason why we started the show, is not just to talk about whatever, but to talk about, like, things that we liked and to talk about where they fit in our view of how media works and all that fun stuff. Uh... So today, for our spotlight, I do enjoy how my version of of uh, the weekly spotlight has turned into, here's an audio drama I'm listening to right now, because I'm, um, I think I've talked about this a little bit on the show. I've sort of stepped away from being a visually oriented person. Like, I was that kid that could read, like, two 400-page novels a week, um, and now I mainly listen to audiobooks and podcasts. So this week... I wanted to talk about a podcast that is over, but the people that um, are making it keep are continuing to put out new material, and that is um, ARS Paradoxica, which is um, a drama about time travel. Um, basically, the main character accidentally invents time travel and gets sent back uh, to the middle of World War II, where her work is immediately co-opted by the U.S. government. <laughs> like immediately (laughs) and um so much of the show is her dealing with 
being in the past and figuring out this the specific way her version of time travel works. And that's actually one of the more interesting things is seeing how the people who wrote the show sort of tweaked with that trope because for them their version of time travel you can only go back you can never go forward um so she can't get back to her own time but i'm in like the second season now and over the course of the show they get more into um the science itself is well researched in my opinion i don't know much about that section of theoretical physics um but it's it's the writing is tight the writing is really really tight um so they're at ars paradoxica p-a-r-a-d-o-x-i-c-a um on twitter and the people um the main account that the people who produce that show now work from is at the whisper forge uh hannah where can they find us you can find us on Twitter at Remedial Studies. You can find us on Tumblr at remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. You can email us at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. And we are also on Instagram, so you can find us at Remedial Studies on there. So you should like the show, you should rate the show, you should review the show, you should tell all your friends about the show. Uh, We love doing this. We have been so fortunate to have made some cool friends doing it. Uh, I know that's not, like, very professional to say, but we're not a professional podcast. We're a very unprofessional podcast, (laughs) and I love that about what we do here Um, So we really appreciate you guys and everything that you do to interact with us and spread the word about the show. So I think that's it on my end. Yeah. uh, One last bit of housekeeping. We have our next two shows planned out. So we have everything for uh, the month of November scheduled for what we're going to do. So we're going to tell you that right now. Uh, Next time, we're going to return to Remedial Read Along and return to the world of Terry Pratchett's Discworld with Jingo, which is the next book in the City Watch series. I know nothing about what what it's about, and I'm very excited. After that, we are going to be talking about um, a show that I did not expect to love as much as I do the CW's Riverdale. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited about that episode. It's going to be so good because I want to talk about gritty reboots so yes. bad. And now we get to, <laughs> and it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited because I know um, this is like this generate, not generation, but like this is the new Teen Wolf and I'm here for it. <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I have bought wholesale stock. I'm into it. Um, so I think, though, it is time for us to leave you robots. Have a very happy and safe Halloween. Um, have uh, just have a good day. It's been a lot. Please remember to go vote. Um, if you're not registered, too late, I guess. Um, but please remember uh, to go vote. I know we're in a system where, like, as much as we push that every vote matters, unlike the national presidential scale, that might not be true. But in, like, your local and state stuff, it really does make a lot more of a difference than I think we realize sometimes. Um, but just 
Keep fighting the good fight, guys. We're going to keep trying to do that, too. Yeah. We're going to try, and you can try, too. And until next time, bye, robots. Bye, robots.